Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, today, we woke up today, you looked at the tape, there was a lot of news about the big Wall Street banks. We had Goldman cutting jobs. A little uh, bit muted, though, right? Because Goldman was supposed to cut, like, over 4,000 yeah, jobs. Yeah, so it was even 8% less. percent of its workforce. Exactly. But, you know, nonetheless, a, now a, we are a big number. Morgan yeah. Stanley, John Prusan, their COO, uh, stepping down. Uh, and then Credit Suisse and Michael Klein negotiating for Credit Suisse to buy Michael Klein's firm as part of this new Credit Suisse versus Boston. So let's break it down. Plus, we got earnings coming up for these big banks at the end of the week. So let's get a nice little round table going for us. Uh, Allison Williams, senior uh, banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us uh, via the phone. And Bloomberg News Wall Street reporter Shanali Basic uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Allison, of the three news items we got, the Goldman News, the Credit Suisse News, the Morgan Stanley, which one is most important to you? Should we be paying attention to these things? I mean, I think uh, Goldman confirming the headcount cuts, I think, is, is probably the most important in terms of thinking about the environment. Um, a couple of things I point out on the 3,200 number, um, only about a third of that investment banking and trading, and a lot of those cuts really going towards uh, the consumer business, which was um, an effort that they, um, an initiative they did several years ago. I would say that, um, you know, there was a lot of skepticism, including myself, around the offering and the competitive, um, you know, the, the company's competitive advantage there really um, didn't seem to make sense. And I think they are pulling back and just refocusing that effort. Keep in mind, a lot of the headcount increases they've seen this year have come from acquisitions. So scaling back and right-sizing some businesses. But on the investment banking side, you know, this is something that um, you know we're closely watching in the first quarter. The pipelines were good all last year, um, but we feel like they're becoming a bit stale. And across the industry, you mean? Doing, um, yes, across the industry, um, and for Goldman Sachs as well. Well, but this and, is the thing, Allison, because. Uh, so most of the job cuts are going to be at basically Marcus, the consumer-facing division that they yeah. seem to have decided, that wasn't a great idea, and now they're scaling back. Um, and the other cuts that are coming in trading, investment banking, okay, they haven't done that for a few years, right? And they hired, they've hired so many people. So this, to me, isn't a sign that Wall Street is massively right-sizing, more like right. Goldman Sachs is just getting back to business as usual and taking care of some stuff they had to do last year and didn't get around to. Well, I do think, I mean, I don't think it's a massive right-sizing. I think that, you know, as they've said, they haven't done their sort of typical 5%, and so that's coming back. And so if you, you know, look at the math and you X out the market stuff, it, it is the typical. And so... I think what's going to be interesting is what's going to happen with compensation at, at Goldman and the firms, uh, as well as headcount. Because what we had heard from Solomon 
um, you know, even just a, a month ago, I believe, um, was that the cost to compete had not come down as much as they would have thought. Daniel Pinto, who runs the um, J.P. Morgan's corporate and investment bank, also said that they were going to use comp as a lever rather than job cuts. So we will see, um, you know, what the interplay is be- between those two things. We do think that cost pressure continues into next year. And that's the big variable that we'll hear about during earnings because we can track a lot of things. Um, we can track that equity underwritings are down significantly. We can track that pick is good and equities um, less so. Um, but expenses really involve management judgment in terms of the level of investments that they're making. And that's really going to determine, you know, give us a signal in terms of what they think about ahead and also the profitability for the coming year. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Shanali, um, John Prusen, COO of uh, Morgan Stanley, one of the leaders, one of the potential successors to Mr. Gorman as CEO. How big of a piece of news is this for Morgan Stanley? Listen, for Morgan Stanley and a standalone person story, it is a huge story. Uh, on one hand, Jonathan Prusen was a CFO, typically a spot at Morgan Stanley that has gone on to great heights in corporate America. Think Ruth Porat over at Alphabet now, yep. uh, formerly that same spot as Jonathan Prusan. But also, you know, this is a deputy to James Gorman for decades, really. He was a key figure in 2008. He was a key figure when you think about the last couple of years and the massive deals they've done there. Uh, new things for him ahead, I'm certain. But I would also say on kind of a bigger macro picture here, executive comp, not just comp at every level of the bank, these banks, the CEOs made 30 to $35 million last year in terms of their total compensation package. Nice. It was sweet <laughs> for them. There was some record, seriously, a record, uh, record numbers here. So then do you start to have that come down? And then does the pay for talent at the top ends of all these banks start to get into a tougher space? There are some jobs that are open when you think about the buy side, president roles, CEO roles, when you think about even some of the largest private equity firms in the world. And so there's a lot of opportunities still out there for the talent at the top uh, if you think about folks like Jonathan Prusian. I wonder what the you remember the stories we had and Allison you might know this I mean are they still have a war for talent out there do you think or is, are those days over? I think there is still competition for talent um, as I said I think Daniel Pinto who runs JP Morgan's IB um, you know, said that they're taking the opportunity to to pick up some talent. A lot of the M and boutiques are also still hiring. So I think within certain businesses and, and for certain um, areas, it still is competitive. And so again, we're going to look to see what the extents are of these cuts, where they're coming from. It does seem like with today's number, they're perhaps less than. Um, initially feared. I think the initial reporting was 4,000 jobs, and then even to reduce 3,200 of that, a fair amount relates to the consumer business. All right, guys, thanks so much for breaking that down. Good stuff as always. We have always. an assignment for Shanali. We do? Tell me, tell yeah. me. So Citadel is building apparently a gigantic new tower here in New York City. Want me to get City. a tent and sleep outside? No, but Ask find out why. why? Who, who's going to work there? Like people uh, are going to work for Ken Griffin. Maybe I it'll last a year or two, but, and then but they'll But from leave, home, but they right? For, no, don't they work from home? In. Or from Palm Beach or from Miami or wherever? <laughs> Allison Williams, senior bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone, and Chanali Basic, she's our Wall Street reporter, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Lots of news crossing the tape regarding some of the Wall Street giants. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, Matt, uh, Bloomberg Business Week this week, uh, they highlight the uh, 50 uh, stocks to watch in 20, 50 companies to watch in 2023. And this is a list of stocks uh, selected by the analysts of Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, so some really interesting names across a variety of industries on a global scale. So why don't we start off taking a look at the tech sector uh, with some of the names that they put on the list there. We can do that with Bloomberg Intelligence. Senior tech analyst Anurag Rana and Mandeep Singh. Mandeep Singh is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Anurag. Where's Anurag? Via Zoom from ah, somewhere. I'm just calling it Chicago. in. Yeah. Because it's a Monday, it you don't come to the office on Monday. No, right, he's got Anurag? a special thing going on. He's got a special <laughs> thing. Um, Mandeep, let's start with you. You know, I know you and Anurag and, and the tech team of Bloomberg Intelligence kind of look at tech holistically. So let's just start right there. How is tech looking in terms of spending, in terms of trends in 2023 and what may be somewhat of a recession year? Look, I, I think the high level trends are cloud is still a secular driver and more so on the infrastructure side, things uh, still look pretty good. Although a lot of the cybersecurity companies, which so far is a segment that did particularly well, I mean, everyone is concerned about cyber threats, they called it a longer sales cycle. So this is the first time they started talking about it. That just goes to show that IT spending will likely decelerate this year. It's a given. Okay. Question is by how much, and we think it will be more, the effects will be more pronounced on the application side than the infrastructure side. So that's one trend. On the decelerating tech spend. Yes. It's so fascinating, especially in the wake of the Southwest. Um, what, would, what do we even call that? Fiasco, right? Yeah. They canceled tens of thousands of flights because they didn't invest enough in IT. They regret it and now have to ramp up spending. Is everyone else going to be in the same situation at the end of 2023? Yes. And look, there are certain sectors that are doing very well. I mean, energy sector, prime example, they are at peak profitability. They can afford to spend on a lot of these digital transformation initiatives. And the other one being ad sector on the other end of the spectrum, right? All the digital ad companies right now are cutting costs. Yep. They're laying off employees. And so they, it just goes to show that every sector and market is different right now. And there are some end markets that will continue to spend uh, on IT transformation and others have to pull back because their core business isn't doing well. The one other trend I would call out is digital ad spending will remain weak. And, and that's where the likes of yep. Meta and Alphabet, there is no easy way out because companies find sales and marketing spend to be the easy one to pull back on in yep. times like these. And, and that will continue to hurt uh, these companies. Anurag, I know you spent you know, most of your career focusing on software. What are some, what's a software name that we should be paying attention well, to going forward? Well, I, I actually cheated and I went ahead and looked in you did. the business week. So I know that Anurag <laughs> is writing about Microsoft and what he's saying runs pretty much counter what Mandeep just told us, right? He starts out a recovery in spending on cloud computing after a slowdown could spur surprises to the upside. So while we're worried about 
And from Mandeep's perspective, CrowdStrike, and it was a worry in 2022, right at the end of the year as well. You think that there's going to be a recovery for a company like Microsoft and the cloud operators? Yeah, no, I dare not to go opposite my, uh, Mandeep. I actually agree with him wholeheartedly that um, within technology, within software, infrastructure area is going to be far better than the application area. And as far as Microsoft is concerned, you know, I, I think over the next few quarters, I would say in the next two to three quarters, they will see a slowdown in their cloud growth. Um, but by the end of this year, we do expect a rebound, uh, partially because of underinvesting in some of these areas, a, a, a lower capex going into this year, uh, as well as easier, easier comparison. You know, cloud is one trend that is not going anywhere. It's just a matter of respective growth rates. For, so for something that was growing in this case, for Microsoft, Azure was growing in the low 40% range. You know, there is no logical, there's no reason why it shouldn't grow in the 30% range next year, um, even after accounting for the slowdown. I mean, I totally get that. And I understand why more businesses would want to move to the cloud or move more of their business to the cloud. But if I'm moving more stuff to the cloud, then I'm calling up CrowdStrike. I, I need more security in that in that case, right? You certainly yeah, but, do. But they, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Anurag. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's, you know, it's Mandeep's stock. So Mandeep, what do you, <laughs> I mean, is, is cybersecurity spending not gonna lift back up in 2023? Or do you just think CrowdStrike takes a bigger piece of a smaller pie? Yes, and uh, there is a definite trend towards consolidation because cybersecurity is one market that's extremely fragmented. You have hundreds of vendors, and you can take a look at how many vendors have revenue over $10 billion in cybersecurity. None. Palo Alto is the largest vendor with close to $8 billion. So it just goes to show that there aren't any pure-play cybersecurity companies with scale, and that is where there will be a trend towards consolidation. We think CrowdStrike is a name that will be a consolidator. And whether it's through M&A or them expanding uh, you know, organically their product suite, which they are, companies don't want to deal with 50, hundreds of vendors when it comes to managing cybersecurity. Because who do you pinpoint to if you get hacked? And so that is the risk they want to uh, you know, deal with in terms of just dealing with, let's say, five or 10 vendors on the cybersecurity side, and that's where scale matters. And we think cybersecurity, uh, CrowdStrike is a good play. And you think they're looking at 38% increase in revenue this year, uh, two billion, what, two billion? Es Estimates have come down. Now it's more uh, close to low 30s. So, uh, <laughs> oh, I see. Since, uh, since that, the time we wrote yeah. it, I mean, things have come. And that's what I mean by IT spending will slow down. It's a given. Every company is pulling back. But it's interesting to put this in context, right? Even if they grow 30% to just under $2 billion, um, Microsoft's only going to grow 10% on Arag to just over $200 billion in sales. Hey. It's a gigantic. No, I, I mean, that's the difference when you talk about a uh, a, a oh, market me, a market with without anybody having scale, and then a market where you've got like a duopoly, basically. And let me let me tie in, guys, Anurag and Mandy. We've been talking dividends all morning. So Anurag, I'm looking at Microsoft. It's got a 1.18 percent dividend yield. Can you tell them to step that up a little bit? Um, I think, Paul, I'm going to say the same exact thing I said about Apple. I would rather they buy back more shares at this point because, um, you know, they, that really does help the bottom line far more than the dividend area. Um, they have it as a token, and that's fine. But but I, I really want to see some far more buybacks going into this year 
uh, by all tech companies. See, these tech guys, they just, they're just, they just can't stand oh, dividends. Dividend is sacred. Once you start giving dividend, you <laughs> exactly. can't walk it back. So, you know. All right, real quick. Yeah, yeah Mandeep, true. Look at BP, right? They cut their dividend and now they're despised. Mandeep, 30 seconds, meta. You mentioned it's kind of with a negative caveat, but it's one of the names you've got. Yes, so gross margin pressure. Look, uh, if you're growing at low single digit when inflation is six, 7%, you got a problem. And that is where Meta has a growth problem. Also, Apple's privacy issues, and you know they have to pay. So you think for there's more risk to the Meta story? There is more risk. All right, good stuff. Mandeep Singh uh, he and Anurag Rana, they are senior technology analysts for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep Drew joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and Anurag via Zoom, talking about some of the tech names to pay attention to. Uh, in 2023, and it's all part of the 50 Companies to Watch piece in Bloomberg Business Week that is on stands right Love now, it. and it's on the dot-com thing, the intraweb. You can get that there. As we all know now, 2022, there's nowhere to hide. Stocks down 20%, bonds down double digits. Now it's a question, I guess, in 2023, what does the Fed do, of course? How much earnings risk is there out there? How do you play this market here early in the year? Let's check in with a professional, David Bonson. He's a CIO at the Bonson Group. So, David, I mean, and a dividends guy, also, and a dividends guy. We yeah. love the dividend story, David. How do you, how are you positioning yourself here, your clients for 2023 here? Uh, you'll be shocked to know we're positioning them in dividend growth equities, <laughs> which is the same. Same place uh, they were positioned in 2022. And, and I will say, when we say there was no place to hide last year, our dividend equity portfolio was up 5% last year, about 25 points nice. better than S&P. Now, look, energy was... Now, I was going to say, how much energy did you hold there? We were at 14%, and the index started off the year at 3%. Yep. So it would have been pretty impossible not to outperform. And, you know, a bigger factor than owning energy was not owning Fang. And, and when you're in a cap-weighted index like the S&P and five stocks make up about 20% of the index, you're going to um, sink or swim on those five stocks oftentimes. But I just think philosophically that uh, dividend growth represents a really good risk-adjusted solution to the problems people are most concerned about. And What's a change, David. I mean, um, Paul and Tom were just talking to Jeremy Schwartz from Wisdom Tree and also talking about Jeremy Siegel's call that this decade, in their opinion, is going to be the dividend decade of the dividend. Do you agree that that uh, that investors are, are moving to that? Yes, I do. And I think that the reasoning for that is both the primacy of cash flow that people desperately need, the growth of that cash flow outperforming inflation, but also the higher quality of the underlying companies. If a company is able to sustainably grow its dividend, it means it has the free cash flow to do it. It means it has a business model that is less cyclical and less lumpy, less dependent on future technological innovation. So we kind of refer to it as shorter duration stocks, to use a bond analogy. Do you miss out, though, on the kind of fan growth, because even though last year was horrible for those big tech stocks, um, you know, if you'd invested in them in 2010, 2011, 2012, you would be you wouldn't really regret it, would you? Well, here's the thing. Um, we uh, believe that in 2010 to 2020, you had the golden era of those uh, growth type stocks, saying, et cetera. And in that decade, there were five years that we outperformed the S&P with dividend growth, and five years we didn't. 
And when all was said and done for the decade, it was neck and neck with much less volatility and quadrupled the cash flow. So even in a golden era of FANG, I think dividend growth has done very well. But I don't think the last decade is a great example because, yes, Netflix at one point went up 10 times, and we know about Apple and Facebook. But the reality is that you had the Fed at the zero bound the entire decade, basically. That's not going to happen again. That pushed multiple expansion up, and it created 700% of the return. You're not going to get that multiple expansion again. David, you said your long, overweight uh, energy had had, boy, a great two years, I guess, 21 and 22. Did I miss that trade? What do you, how about 23? You know what I would really recommend people look at is the midstream side where, um, uh, you know, look, Exxon and Chevron are not going to repeat the same returns they had last year. We're not selling those type of names, but we've trimmed them down to target weight, made extraordinary profits, and we just keep them at the weight we want in the portfolio as a risk management. But the midstream, the pipelines, those terminals that have to export LNG to uh, uh, continents overseas that desperately need it. We like that story. It's great capital discipline right now. They finally have wonderful debt ratios that are more responsible. And so I look at midstream energy as a really good spot right now. What are the other names that you like? I mean, what what gets you pumped when you wake up in the morning in term in terms of an actual, you know, stock a pitch? Well, look, right now, Blackstone, as an asset manager, and I want to be clear because this comes up all the time, we're talking about Blackstone, not BlackRock, but Blackstone um, was really hit hard near the end of last year. Uh, We've owned it for over 10 years, and we believe that they have very repeatable dividend growth, um, but you get to enter right now at over a 6% yield. And there's not balance sheet risk. They're investing other investors' money, real estate, credit, and with great free cash flow as a management entity. So um, we think the story as to why Blackstone came down last year near the end of the year is very, very wrong. And in the meantime, there's so much dry powder that if you do get a deeper recession than some anticipate, it will actually end up benefiting returns over time. So we like Blackstone, and then I do get very excited when I wake up Um, about the midstream energy story we use umi which is an actively managed etf that is buying just certain high quality pipeline type companies hey david as someone who focuses on dividends are you frustrated that apple only has a dividend like 0.7 percent yet they've got a gajillions of dollars of cash on their balance sheet they throw off a billion dollars a year in free cash flow are you disappointed or frustrated that they don't pay a 2 or 3 or 4% dividend yield? Paul is mad, and he's trying to get a group together for a letter-writing campaign. Exactly. Well, a, a bunch of us tried that you know, sometime back <laughs> after Mr. Mr. Jobs passed away. There was a big effort, and, and Einhorn and others were behind it. They did end up starting to pay a dividend. Um, but the fact of the matter is that it's why we can't own it. We sold the stock near its highs. Um, and it, the entire reason had nothing to do with we believe it's going to come down in 2022 or we think the PE is going to end up contracting. It was just simply that they were not, in our opinion, respecting the shareholder enough by sharing that cash flow. And people say, well, look, Apple was making more money with your money than you were making with your money. And that's very true. But it's always true until it isn't. And then you end up buying Dr. Dre's headphones company for $3 billion and <laughs> setting money on – you set money on fire is what you do over time. And so I think it's fine that um, Apple has continued with a high-priority innovation. It's a well-run company, but it grew through the trees, 
and they didn't keep the dividend up with it. And no, we want dividend growth to match the growth of the company. What are some of the other big dividend plays that you like? I mean, 6% on Blackstone is pretty juicy. That, that's a juicy one. And, you know, a lot of the consumer staples companies last year, which are traditionally great dividend growers, you had those that were up on the year in the food and beverage business. We own Pepsi and did very well there. We don't own General Mills, but we wish we had. But then you have companies that weren't just pure food and beverage consumer staples that were more into household products and hygiene as well. And company, we uh, entered Clorox, we think, at a really good entry point after a dip last year. And Procter Gamble, which we've owned, I think, for 20 years now, um, is one of the great dividend growers in American history. Th- these companies have a really good uh, ability for uh, stickiness with prices. The, the inputs come down as inflation is clearly headed lower, but the consumer and the pricing power of the company is more than willing to still pay 10 cents more and 20 cents more for diapers and laundry detergent and these types of products. So generally, we think you're going to get margin expansion in, in consumer staples that you're not going to get in a lot of other sectors. What What's a good growth number that you like? I'm looking across, you know, Procter & Gamble and Clorox are like 6 7% uh, five-year net growth. Blackstone is 16% five-year net growth. Is that an incredibly impressive number? Are you referring to the growth of the dividend itself? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, we want to see somewhere from six to ten. So it's funny. That's exactly those numbers. And you get double-digit growers sometimes, like Blackstone and Amgen, and that's because we bought them when they began paying a dividend uh, a decade ago. And so that growth rate may slow down um, just because of the law of big numbers. But yeah, we want to see high single-digit dividend growth. And the only thing I would say is we want to see it in uh, bad periods too. Okay, we kicked off more money to our clients in 2020 than we did in 2019. And yet we were not having a great year in 2020. We were up, but energy was killed and we didn't own FANG. The thing is, the dividends were still growing. And yet there were 70 dividend cuts in the S&P 500. And nobody was buying back stock. And yet really good, reliable dividend growers continue to do what they've done. But Exxon and Chevron grew their dividend in 2020. So that's the type of stuff we look for. All right. Great stuff. The, the decade of the dividend. And this is the morning of the dividend. It's exciting, David, isn't it's it? It's good stuff. Yeah, we don't talk about dividends that much. David Bonson, CIO at the Bonson Group, joins us here talking stocks. And boy, I didn't, was he, it Black, BlackRock or Blackstone? Blackstone. 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 And that's a 16% growth over the last five years in dividend? In their dividend. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a great business private equity is, right? Oh, Even if you have a bad year, you still take your you take your fees. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, and look who are the big owners of that stock. <laughs> you know, Mr. Schwartzman uh, likes to have his uh, dividend income. He'd rather have the capital gains income, I'm sure, but he, he does quite well there. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, and New York. And New York. Because we are lucky enough to have the finance minister of Ontario in here, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, joining us uh, in studio in New York. And I note that you are also the former president of the Canadian Society of New York. 
Wow, you do your homework. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, I'm just, by that, I surmise that you must know also a thing or two about the glory of the old school cabs. You know, they used to be like a really cool thing, a trademark. They used to be, a, you know, a, a, an icon of New York City, and I don't think that's the case anymore. I lived here for 15 years, okay. so from 92 to 2008, roughly. Uh, I was here for 9-11, lived in uh, Manhattan, and... Uh, I uh, struggled with everyone else to get a cab, particularly when it was raining and snowing, because I lived above ground. And then I figured out New York has a subway, and then That's my right. whole life changed. All right. Well, my thing that jumps out is a former president, COO of TD Securities, a great firm uh, up there in Toronto. Talk to us about the the economics, the finance for our good friends in Ontario. How are things going up there? Because I know that I, I've learned recently in the last year or two how important the housing market is to the Canadian economy relative to the U.S. economy. But just give us a sense how things are in Ontario. Well, things are, you know, we're not immune. We're not an island uh, yep. in Ontario. So in terms of global uh, global supply chain, geopolitical risks, uh, you know, COVID, I think we fared better than most jurisdictions around the world in, in COVID. Uh, the good news is that we've uh, got a robust plan to build Ontario. Uh, we're very focused on, on rebuilding the economy. We're attracting investments uh, into the auto sector, battery manufacturing, advanced manufacturing technology. Uh, we're considered the Silicon North up in, uh, okay. up in Ontario. Uh, we've got uh, a, a huge infrastructure plan to build Ontario as well, public transit, subways, uh, infrastructure, roads, hospitals, Basically, uh, schools. Basically, Ontario has everything. It's got Ottawa, it's got Toronto, and it's got Hamilton. We what get, is the rest of the we country? Get, we have? got everything except for a Stanley Cup, so we, okay. we have to get the Stanley <laughs> Cup. But exactly. I gotta tell you, the other thing is we've got people. Yeah. So last week, uh, the government of Canada announced that 430,000 people had come into got permanent residency in Canada. So people around the world with great skills, great uh, diversity of backgrounds are coming to Canada, and 60% of them come to Ontario. So the federal government's target is 500,000 people by 2025. 60% come to Ontario. Mm. And, so and where do they come from, generally? I know every year. the West Coast of Canada has always had a big Asian presence, just geography, I guess, plus some other things. But where are these people coming from? All Jim? over the world. All over, okay. A ton from Asia, a ton from all over the world. They bring great skills, diversity of background, but uh, they help build our economy. And that's why we're so focused on bringing people to Canada and Ontario, having the infrastructure, building the health care, the schools, the, the public transit. And uh, it's a great place to invest. We've been cutting red tape. And by the way, the other thing is 94% of Ontario's electricity is zero carbon emissions. We, 60% is nuclear, okay. and we're doubling down on investing in nuclear, so small modular reactors. I was going to say, interesting. T tell us about the technology there, because Matt and I, we've had people in talking to us about some of the smaller modular nuclear options. And well, they, we know they, that Bill Gates has worked for decades right. on developing nuclear technology that's clean, that's safe, it that sounds reasonable. uses spent fuel rods. So so my riding in, uh, in, in Ontario has a nuclear facility in Pickering. 14% of Ontario's electricity comes from there. And just down the road, we're building the first small modular reactor. We already have shovels in the ground. GE, a, yep. a US company along with Hitachi, uh, we're using their technology. And this is first of many that we're going to build in Ontario. This one can, can power 300,000 homes. Now look, small modular reactors have been on you know, submarines and aircraft yep. carriers for a while. Very safe. Good jobs, good technology, and very clean. I yeah. will say I've been to Canada probably 10 times in my life, and every time, now that I think about it, was to Ontario. Whether, that, whether I'm going to Toronto to do some shopping, and I love the Hudson Bay, they have these point blankets that are phenomenal, okay. um, or if I'm going 
you know, out into the wilderness. I love the Algonquin uh, Park up there, which I spent a few weeks portaging my canoe around. Um, and my very favorite car is built in Ontario. Oh, that's a question. The Dodge Challenger, the Hellcat, which right. actually leads me to ask a question about a sort of a shift in the industry because this is the last year that Dodge is going to build those big muscle cars, and a lot of um, <laughs> internal combustion engines are going to be phased out, right? A lot of them are built in Canada. Um, how are you prepared for the shift to electric vehicles? It's a great question, uh, and what, what we're doing is we're attracting investments from all the car companies. Uh, in the last two years, over $16 billion to build electric vehicles in Ontario. Why are they coming to Ontario? Because we have a history of manufacturing in Ontario. Uh, we also have uh, some of the best talent in the world in Ontario, an education system uh, that is providing skilled trades and, and people with the skills to build these cars. We're also attracting battery manufacturing. So uh, the biggest um, investment in Canada's history, $5 billion into uh, Windsor, Ontario, through Stellantis and, uh, and uh, LG out of South Korea to build a $5 billion battery manufacturing plant. But we also have the critical minerals. So your president doesn't have to call China or, or <laughs> Russia and say, right. how about those critical minerals that have to go into the battery? So we've got it all in Ontario. Those minerals well, are there. It's and not so we're going we're gonna to be a big player. It's not just minerals. You know, last week, Paul and I were talking to some uh, – some executives who are concerned about the fact that the U.S. isn't fast enough in terms of granting workers' visas to people who are highly educated but just come from different countries, right? A lot of the, a lot of the times they're educated here, and then we won't let them work here. So some businesses are moving to Canada because yep. you're better at expediting that kind of visa. Is that, is that a priority? Is that a part of a plan? It's 100% part of the priority, part of the plan. I mean, you know, it's great to have all this investment, uh, government money, private sector money to build things, but if you don't have the labor and the skilled labor, and by the way, these are all high tech, really good paying job and sustainable jobs for the future. They're not going away. So uh, so you have, to, you have to have a strategy for talent, just like a, a private sector. I spent 30 plus years in the private sector. You gotta have the same strategy in government. One of the big problems with that kind of growth, I'm from a small town in Ohio, Greenville, yes, Ohio, sure. and Intel is putting in a big new facility um, down the highway from us. So, of course, property prices have doubled, right? Mm -hmm. In Toronto, I know you've had a huge boom, and now, is it a bust? I mean, what's, what's the story with the real estate picture in Ontario and Toronto? The big challenge is that so many people are coming to Ontario, and we have young families. Uh, there's no supply. So we've got a plan to build a million and a half homes over the next 10 years. And, it, and we're doing that with the private sector by cutting red tape, by putting in incentives to build, uh, making it easier to build the zoning and what, uh, those sort of things. Because, uh, you know, my, my, I'm a first generation, I'm, uh, my parents from Hungary. I was gonna uh, ask you the, we were challenged with your last name pronounced, and we think we got it. Bethlen well. Falvey. Bethlen Falvey, right? Yes. <laughs> Rolls off your tongue. Well, you're smarter than I am because it took me a couple of years to figure out my name. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my parents, uh, they made it bombs and bullets overhead, two of their, their parents and, uh, and three of their great grandparents, uh, great, my great grandparents, seven people in a home. Mm. So, you know, you got to have housing. And so the plan to build a lot of housing, because it's a supply issue, the price will keep going up if we don't build. What's the status of the, the healthcare system in Canada right now? Because I know during the pandemic, everybody kind of was looking at every other country saying, how are they doing? How are they dealing with it? Was one system working better than the other? What's the status of the Canadian healthcare system? Well, like any healthcare system around the, the world, it's uh, the COVID really exposed that uh, 
you know, both the complexity and the volume of cases, our, our fixed infrastructure was pushed to the brink. Um, so we're, we're investing heavily not only on, on the infrastructure, long-term care homes, hospitals, home and community care, but also the labor, the nurses. Is it a socialized system in Canada? It's one payer, ta one, one, pay. one taxpayer paid. Okay. So it doesn't matter if you make no money or if you make $10 billion, okay. you can go into a hospital and get equal service. And that has worked really well. Now, a lot of the healthcare system is delivered privately, meaning that the private sector delivers it, but the taxpayer, it's one credit card, it's the taxpayer credit card. And that, by the way, reduces the overall cost because we're basically pooling the risk of who needs health care. Yeah, I've noticed actually after having lived in Germany for the past six years that the U.S., our system, what we do is essentially pay the highest prices in the world and we fund, we we, we make it possible for the rest of the world to have cheaper drugs and cheaper I services. Yeah, I, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole. What are you doing here in New York this week? Well, I'm here because, uh, you know, I want to I want to make sure people are aware of the great things going on in Ontario as we talked about the economy uh, you know we had our payroll numbers like you did last yep. week we had uh, 40 uh, 44,000 uh, new jobs created last week uh, full-time jobs uh, 43 of the 44,000 were full-time jobs just in Ontario yep um, we're building the infrastructure that I mentioned we're working with labor uh, I stand up on podiums with the uh, labor unions you know when was the last time you saw a conservative and a labor union right. standing on the same po podium why because we're investing in training them skilled trades building things and so uh, i'm here to talk about ontario and how ontario the investment is going in ontario and our growth prospects notwithstanding the yep. risks geopolitical and economic are out there that yep. uh, Ontario is, uh, is a place to invest in. Well, we're glad you could come in here. Thanks so much for joining us. Peter Bethlen Falvey, the Finance Minister of Ontario. I, I will say my goal, one of my goals for 2023 is to get up to Brompton and pick up my Dodge Challenger before they stop making you, Yeah, up. you're going to have to. Yeah. And then just come flying over the border. What is our Federal Reserve going to do? Uh, that continues to be a driver for this market. So we always like to talk rates. One of the folks we'd love to touch base with is Priya Mizra, Managing Director and Head of Global Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Um, Priya, I'm sure you guys at TD wrote a very nice year-ahead outlook for rates. What was kind of the takeaway that you want your clients to, to take? Thanks for having me on. Um, so it was about uncertainty. And I mean, the start of this year tells you we almost reached 4%. Now we're almost at 350 on the 10-year. So we were highlighting how the market's going to be really torn, just as central banks will be in terms of the conflicting, uh, which could, you know, could be conflicting goals in terms of trying to get inflation back down and uh, you know, maintain the unemployment uh, picture. So our view is that the economy is going to slow, but the Fed, I think, will be uh, unable to respond quickly or preemptively. And so that's why I think the long end is where we have rates much lower than consensus, because I think that long duration risk is going to look attractive if the Fed is unable to cut rates soon. So we have the Fed hiking to five and a half by the middle of this year, and then actually staying put through the course of uh, the economy heading into a recession. But that still helps the longer end outperform because then the recession is longer, deeper. If you don't have any policy support, and we don't think any fiscal support either. So it's a, it's the outlook was one of lower rates in the long end through the course of the year. But keeping in the back of our mind that there's less conviction, lots of, um, I think, cross-currents will make the market volatile. And I think the first week, 
showed that it it is a very volatile market. Mm. And final point I'll say is the global rate picture is also extremely important. The BOJ moved, the ECB is doing QT. So I think it's important for us not only to look at the Fed and the US, but also keep an eye out for what global rates are doing because that tends to have a big impact on uh, on, on the treasury market. Let, let's bring in Daniel Diamartino Booth. CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence to um, give us her take as well. And, you know, before we get to just the basic calls, Danielle, um, because I'd love to know both of your takes on doesn't the Fed have to go 50 in February? Um, what do you think about the global picture? How does that influence, if at all, Jerome Powell and co.? Well, I don't know that it influences Jerome Powell and co. as much as it should definitely play into investors' thinking. We forget that in, in 2017, there was $2.1 trillion of quantitative easing globally injected into markets, and that 2018 really started to get hairy towards the end of that year as other central banks were jumping onto the quantitative tightening bandwagon or shrinking their balance sheets. So it's the cumulative effect, regardless of how Jay Powell reacts or doesn't react, given he is, unlike his predecessors, much more focused just on the domestic U.S income and inflation here at home. So, but, but that doesn't change the calculus for investors. And it's with good reason that we've never seen a, a global yield curve as we're seeing it today inverted. I mean, we've never seen M2 growth back to 1959 here in the United States at zero as of the end of November. It's clear that liquidity flows matter to the markets. And I think investors would be unwise to uh, really to dismiss them offhand and I agree with Priya that, that throughout the rest of this year, you know, your long maturity treasuries are just going to keep getting more attractive. Well, Priya, I mean, I'm in the camp that says I think the Fed has already done a pretty good job. Uh, they were aggressive. Um, I don't think we're behind the curve anymore. And it's actually working. You see the housing market rolling over. There's inflation coming down, clearly peaking, has peaked. Why can't they pause some point earlier rather than later this year? I think they have to be concerned about inflation expectations and the service sector. You know, so I think they, they as, as you said, the interest sensitive sectors are slowing. I like Danielle's point on uh, QT. I think the Fed actually doesn't talk much about QT, but that's doing a lot of the tightening in conditions. So to your point, can they stop? They can, but they're nervous about un, what they call unwarranted easing in financial conditions or the market misinterpreting their action as an easier reaction function. I think they want to say, we will stop once we we're convinced that inflation's heading back to 2%. And that's the thing we struggle the most with. How do you get inflation in the near term service inflation well, close to 2% with such a tight labor market. Also, do they say, is it heading back to two, like around four, or is it heading back to two, like around two and a half? I, I can never really understand right. exactly what they're going to do there. Don't they have to do 50, by the way, Priya, at the next meeting? I mean, if they, they run a real risk, if they do 25 and inflation comes roaring back. I think so. I think, I mean, they've been very non-committal on this. I think they're waiting for CPI. The labor market's tight, but wages did tick lower. And then you had that ISM services. We're calling for 50 because we're also looking for core services CPI to stay strong. But if you get a miss in CPI, you know, even if it's a small miss, I think the market's going to run with 25 and they'll need to really communicate that they can go 50. But we are calling for 50 and then a, uh, a, a downshift to 25 over the next two meetings. Danielle, am I just, I mean, 
am I just obsessed with Nehru because I can sometimes remember what the acronym stands for? Or does it have any meaning <laughs> in today's economics? Because it doesn't seem like anybody else cares at all. We, we all loved the Fed number or the uh, jobs number on Friday and no one really gave two hoots for the 3.5% unemployment rate. Well, but I, I think you're mistaken in disregarding the unemployment rate because Powell himself, who has, <clears throat> excuse me, he has the most power among everybody uh, in the Eccles building and throughout the 12 districts, Powell himself uh, continues to cite the unemployment rate. And if they're saying that 4.6% is kind of a theoretical trigger, their target for this year, and the unemployment rate is being as sticky as it is on the way up, then it, it matters. And it matters a lot. And, and there are so many conflicting signals. Again, you've got continuing claims 31% north of their May nadir. That matters. It, it matters that, that, that company closings are already at 100. We're only what, a few days into January, for the month of January so far. All of these things matter. But what, what market participants should be paying attention to, because I think Powell's focus is on financial conditions and investors completely disregarding um, his, res his, his resoluteness to push forward, uh, I think they have to focus on what he's talking about, despite the fact that you had a 10%, excuse me, a 10-point decline in ISM services, new orders. that's never occurred outside of recession. That's not what he's talking about. So that's what investors should, if, if they're looking for where Fed policy is going, if, if, if Jay Powell is going to be dismissive of it, they should be as well, even though you always have to take the full picture in. By the, the way, I think the yield curve will tell you. I think it's important to keep reminding people that we had that ISM services new orders decline on yep. uh, on Friday because a lot of people kind of overlooked it, me included. Yes. Um, but we were told that if it gets to 48, you need to start worrying, and it came in at 48 and change, right? True. And we did point that – no, it came in at uh, 45.2. 40, that's right. Yeah, Remember? Get down to 45, um, right. And I know – uh, we did talk about it for a moment, but we were all kind of carried away, I think, by the non-farms payroll number and the fact that average hourly earnings growth had slowed, but it's still growth, right? Um, and I, you know, as a as a consumer, I hope to always see that grow for everybody, right. but you can understand why the Fed doesn't want it want it to continue growing. Danielle, real quick, just here on Thursday, the CPI, we're gonna, the consensus is six six point five percent, still high, but it's below the seven point one percent less month how do you what's the number that you think j pal's really looking at realistically well I, I do think he's looking at what we call the core core quill intelligence and that's the, the core net of energy net of shelter yep on, on a three-month basis that's south of five percent now uh, on a 12-month year-over-year basis it used to be north of six percent but it's still much higher than what he wants for yep. it to be and if that's the metric he's focused on then we have to be focused on it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Good advice, I think. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, uh, also Priya Misra, Managing Director and Head of Global Rate Strategy at TD Securities, doing a little roundtable. Basically, don't fight the Fed. And that is the absolute first rule I learned on the job in June of 1986. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.